Um, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And I suppose that I should say Happy New Year, or Happy Almost New Year. Uh, thank you for the one person who wished it in return. Uh, some of you have two days left to learn French, or to kick, to kick that coffee habit that you said you were going to kick, or whatever it may be. At the beginning of the year, I sat down to form some resolutions. And because I'm a raging idealist, I didn't form one or two resolutions. Um, I formed 22 resolutions. Uh, I won't tell you which ones I actually got to, but one of those resolutions was to read more books. And because at the end of last year, I had just finished up grad school and had basically committed six years of my life to reading nothing but theology, I knew I needed a little bit more fiction in my diet, just a little bit of like a breather from the things that I had been reading. So I started where all sophisticated literary minds do, with Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. (laughs) And guys, these books were a breath of fresh air, a balm to my weary, theology-full soul. Uh, I tore through these books just with ecstatic Joy. I was swept up in the world of wizards and muggles, of Hogwarts and Quidditch, of Gryffindors and Slytherins, the whole thing. I was just enamored. Even still at this point, I've read the first six books, and I have procrastinated on starting the seventh because I know that when I finish the seventh, I'm going to be devastated. Like, it's just going to wreck me. So I'm just kind of putting off that disappointment for later. But I have to wonder... Why am I so enthralled by these stories? Aside from them just being really good books, why why am I having dreams about Quidditch (laughs) and about flying on a broom? Uh, And why am I not alone? Why is it that there have been 500 million copies of Harry Potter that have been sold? And why is it that not only children, but grown men and women throughout the world tear through these books over and over again, year after year? I would argue that stories like this one speak to deep human cravings, that we crave story. We crave transcendence. We crave purpose and resolution for good to triumph over evil We crave beauty and love and justice and to find our place within a larger plot line. To put put it another way, we crave a story in which to belong. A story of transcendence in which beauty shines, love is known, and good wins out. To take it further, I would argue that every human being finds a story to satisfy these cravings, whether consciously or not. And this goes beyond simply liking stories. We live stories. We lean into them with our lives. So even if you're not one for movies or for books, we all imagine ourselves within some larger story of humanity. Uh, Last week, Maddie and I were driving, and we were listening to Dax Shepard's podcast, The Armchair Expert. And Dax was interviewing Sean Hayes of Will & Grace, And he recounts this memory at a house party where Sean Hayes and Dax's wife, Kristen Bell, sit down at a piano together with Kristen singing and Sean playing the piano. 
Dax describes the moment saying this. You'll start playing and singing, and I'll start crying. Truly, I find it to be one of the more moving things. When you watch two human beings, one opens up their mouth, and it just falls out. And then another person just moves their hands, and emotion and art is generated by two human beings. To watch two humans, two monkeys, two primates sit down, look at each other, click their fingers, and then expletive, just this tidal wave of melody and emotion pour out of both of you. You'd have to be dead not to feel it. Did you hear it there? That even just in that short statement, there is a story in which we all belong, two humans, two monkeys, two primates, and there is beauty. There is emotion. There is art and goodness, and one might argue transcendence. In his voice, we hear that sense of longing for beauty and for humanity, a common story for love and art and all that makes this life beautiful. And I imagine that most of us relate. As Dax says, you'd have to be dead not to feel it. The point that I'm trying to make is this, that whether you are a secular humanist or a Christian or a Christian who's trying not to become a secular humanist, You have longings. We long for a story to which we belong and in which we at least hope that beauty shines and love is known and that good wins out. Further, I would argue that we all have a story that we believe to make sense of the world and of these longings. Scientific naturalism is a story. Buddhism is a story. Atheism is ultimately a story. And the Bible ultimately tells one unified story among the many stories that we encounter every day. It tells a story about God, about the world, about humanity, about why we're here and where all of this train wreck that we're seeing is going. Now, I'm not a philosopher, um, nor an apologist, so my goal is not to quench all of your existential thirst or to satisfy all of your questions. But instead, my goal for the next 30 or so minutes that we have together is simply this, to present the story of Christianity, to give you the narrative that followers of Jesus have strived to live into for 2,000 years. And then after we've heard that story, whether for the first time or for the 500th time, maybe we can stand back together and ask, do you feel it? So to do that, we'll begin where all good stories do at the beginning. Hopefully your Bible is open to Genesis chapter 1. Um, we have a ton of ground to cover today, so I'm just going to ask for your forgiveness in advance. And I'm just assuming you have some leftover holiday cheer in there for me, that your heart grew a couple sizes, or that it's going to right now. And because we're covering a lot of ground, it could be helpful for us to think about this story in parts. So for our purposes, I want us to imagine the Bible as a story with six chapters. Uh, They are as follows. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church, and new creation. With all of that in mind, if you're a note taker, let's begin in chapter 1 with Genesis 1 verse 1. It says this. In the beginning, God. We'll stop there. From the very beginning... God is the main character of the story we are about to read. 
And at this point, if we're going to be good readers, if we're going to treat the Bible as a work of literature, which it is, then we're going to have to suspend some of our knowledge. Remember, we are on page one. We don't know anything about this God. Who is he? What is he like? All we know at this point is that there's some sort of spiritual being who existed in the beginning of the cosmos. And what does he do? Look down again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or another way of saying that is he created everything there is from top to bottom. And as we follow the narrative, we find that this God created every fiber of creation to dance with its counterpart. The moon and the stars, the grass and the ground, the birds and the beasts, day and night. A world full of complexity and beauty is the kind of world this God creates. And so the opening pages of the Bible depict a world in which what this God wants actually happens. His will is done every time. Put another way, God is king. Look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness and called the light day. Let's just stop there. This pattern exists throughout the narrative. It'll say, let there be, and there was. So that every time this God speaks, something comes into being. His will is always done. And every time God the king makes something, he stands back and acknowledges his work. And what does he call it? Good. Yes, he calls it good. Or the Hebrew word is tov. Can you say that? Tov. There's your Hebrew lesson for the night. In this story, God is the good king who brings forth goodness and beauty into the world with the very sound of his voice. And as the crown jewel of his creation, he created Adam or humanity. Go to 1 verse 26. It says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind or humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So notice that God creates man and woman, quote, in his own image. So in this story, to be a human being, to be a man or a woman, is to be in the image of God. That by the very nature of being human, you reflect God. There is the beauty of God's imprint on your existence, so that within all of humanity, of all nations, of all backgrounds, there is the spark of the good God who created all. All of humanity reflects or images in our language him. So perhaps this is why we are so deeply moved by art or by the intimate gazing into another human being's eyes or by the birth of a child or the death of a loved one. Because in this story, we are not merely monkeys interacting with other monkeys. But in the face of every human being you encounter, you are catching the reflection of God. So God made these human beings in his image. He put them in a garden, and then he commanded them to, verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Have babies. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
Rule the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Notice that command language there. Be fruitful, increase, fill, subdue, rule. So in the world of Genesis 1, God is the true good king. But humanity has a job to do. Humanity exists to be little kings and queens under him, like viceroys who extend his reign, his good reign, into his world. And how do they do that? Look at 2 verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it, or to work it and to keep it. So like God, these human beings are to harness all the goodness of the world, to work with the raw materials of the garden in which they find themselves, and to forge more beauty and more goodness, to cultivate goodness wherever they are found. In other words, work. Build relationships, create families, make art and music and food, cultivate the earth and bring forth more good from the good materials that you have to enjoy all of the good world God made. That is the human task. Perhaps this is why we come alive in good work, when you find a job that you just deeply love or in a good relationship when you're with someone who you deeply know and love or in the beauty of nature or in the sweep of a symphony. This is what humanity was made for, life with God in his good world. So to summarize, this story claims there is a God. He is the fount of beauty and love and goodness who created all things. And by simply being human, we have the unique capacity to experience and reflect that God to the world. This is a story in which we belong Where beauty shines, love is known, and good wins out. This is where the first humans of our story find themselves. In a garden with the good God who has given them every tree for their enjoyment, except for one. Which leads us to chapter 2 of our grand story, the fall. The kingdom rebels. Look at 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but... You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God gives them all of the trees, but he gives them one prohibition. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here the story pointedly speaks to the human condition. That at the heart of every man and woman is a choice. Will I decide good and evil for myself? Or will I trust God in his definition for good and evil? Now, so far you may be tracking, but when we turn the page, the story gets weird. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, a lot of questions. Where does this serpent come from? Um, Who is he, and why is he talking? Is he speaking parcel tongue? 
Is it a literal snake? At this point, uh, we don't know. The, the story just doesn't tell us. And I think that's because that is not the point. At minimum, this snake stands as a symbol for all that is evil and broken in our world. And even his tone of voice sounds familiar. Notice that who or whatever this serpent is, its goal is to undermine Adam and Eve's trust in God, to convince them that God is holding out on them. Um, I like how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, and whether or not you have children or aspire to have children, just, just go buy the Jesus Storybook Bible. It says this, As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And so the humans of our story have trusted the serpent rather than God to determine good and evil for themselves. In the biblical story, this is the problem with the human condition, or what theologians have called sin, that we have chosen to decide good and evil for ourselves. And the consequences are great. From this moment forward, God's good world spirals out of control. And if you know Genesis 3 through 11, those chapters are full of violence and polygamy, envy and brokenness, the very opposite of all that is true and good and beautiful, just the consequences when we trust our definition of good evil. So that in the worldview of the Bible, the snake and our distrust are at the bottom of all that is evil and broken in our world. Heinous acts of racism, the death of a loved one, the cancer diagnosis, the wound of a cruel or distant father, that habit you keep coming back to, that deep ache from day to day, every moment that God seems far, every tear that is shed, and every moment you've just wanted it to end finds its roots here. And this is why even the best and most beautiful things in life have pain. They're tarnished. They're fractured. Marriage and love and sex have their moments of shame and heartbreak. Birth results in pain, if not death. The very body that carries you through the good of life eventually turns on you and breaks down and dies. Just here to cheer you up today. <laughs> the, every good relationship eventually ends. Even the best of friendships eventually end, even if just for a moment. The oceans and the valleys that we adore are the same places from which come earthquakes and tidal waves. Things are not as they're supposed to be. But this story is not without hope. Remember, everything we know about this God so far, we're just getting to know him in the story. But everything we do know is that he is good, that he created his world as good, and he's committed to rescuing it. Look carefully at 3, 14 through 15. God speaks to the serpent. He says this, Because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Look carefully at this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Let's break down verse 15 real quick. So it says, I will put enmity or strife between the serpent, the source of evil, and the woman. Between your offspring, the offspring of the serpent, or all the ongoing sources of evil in our world, and her offspring, humanity, humankind. He, singular, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head, the serpent, and you will strike his heel. So what what is going on here? God is saying this, that one day a child will be born of a woman. This child will crush the serpent or strike his head. He will go to war against evil and he will crush it. But picture with me the image of stepping on a snake. He will be struck in return. That he will conquer evil only by experiencing its bite. So who is this child? Easy. We're not there yet. We don't know at this point. From this point in the story, from this point in the story, we must tear through the pages longing for an answer to that question. But it is this cryptic, I just love that, that was beautiful. But it is this cryptic but beautiful promise that the story hinges on. The snake will not deceive forever. Evil will not last. One is coming who will crush the serpent. This promise is picked up in chapter 3 of our story with Israel, where the kingdom begins again. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. When you open Genesis 12, you meet a man named Abram, who later became Abraham, who had many. Oh, you guys are with me. That was beautiful. Look down at verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So if Abraham trusts God and leaves all the life he knows behind in order to follow him, God will bless Abraham and his family and in turn they will bless the world. Anyone recognize all of that blessed language? It repeats over and over again. That language is Genesis 1. It's it's a repetition of Genesis 1. God blessed humanity. And at this point, Abraham, I will bless you. In other words, God is saying, Abraham, if you and your family trust and follow me, I'm going to rescue my world through you. I'm going to fix the problem that sin made. The world will be filled with beauty and I will restore the world to what it should be. This is God's plan for humanity and for Israel. And really, it's a reversal of Genesis 3. That Adam and Eve saw the fruit and then they took it. So to undo this evil, God commissions Abraham and said to hear him and not take, but follow. Instead of seeing and taking, to hear and follow. And Abraham had kids who had kids who became 12 tribes, who became a nation known as Israel. And Israel's job, just like Abraham, was to trust God, to hear him and to trust him, and then to model God's goodness to the world, to partner with God, to restore the world to tov or to good. But if you know the story, Israel didn't trust God. Time and time again, they turned their back on him and defined good and evil for themselves. 
So Genesis 12, all the way through Malachi, the rest of your Old Testament includes story after story of the people of Israel. And all along they hear God's voice and are asked to trust him. But instead they follow the serpent. They see something that looks good and they take it for themselves. And for us, reading those stories is awfully like reading and looking in a mirror. How often do we hear God's voice and know crystal clear, this is what Jesus is inviting me to. But instead we reach out and we take something for ourselves that God did not invite us to. So whether it's Moses or Joshua or Saul or even King David, the man after God's own heart, this pattern runs through the whole story. Like all of humanity, Israel too is broken and doesn't trust God. They turn their back on him time and time again and give in to the serpent. So instead of your Old Testament ending with the arrival of the serpent crusher and a renewed world under a good king, the Old Testament ends with Israel getting removed from their land and 400 years of silence. God does not stir. Not one prophet speaks. And yet, God has not given up on his world. Like a loving father whose child has run from home, he pursues humanity with a relentless tenderness. He will keep his promise to humanity and Israel. A king will come. God will use Israel to bring blessing to the world, even if he has to step into Israel's shoes and do the job for himself. But now we're getting ahead of ourselves again. So to summarize, in order for this story to be made right, one will have to come from among us and do what we cannot. He will have to channel the beauty of God's world embody the love of God and trust God's definition of good so that good might fill the world again. And it's at this point in the story that we move into chapter four of our story. And we open our New Testaments to Matthew chapter one. Turn there. How are we doing? Good. Someone's doing great. I actually just heard that booming voice. Well, you guys look great. You probably have your new uh, Christmas Christmas gear on. I'm wearing some socks from Muji, so I'm feeling great. Um, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we could easily skip that, but slow down. After 400 years of silence, Matthew opens his book with a genealogy, a story of someone's beginning, a genesis, if you will the chronicling of sons and daughters, and a genealogy of whom? He tells us in his words, Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the Anointed One, the one filled with God's Spirit, the son of David, or the one who would rule as a good king. Remember the promise is that a king would come from David and he would put the world to rights, the son of Abraham. And what did we just read about? That someone would come from Abraham who would trust God and restore his blessing, his goodness to the whole world. So if you're a first century Israelite and you're reading this story, you're going bonkers. You're wondering, who, who is this Jesus? Who, how, how do I get to know him? Is this the serpent crusher that we've been aching for, longing for? Is God finally going to move and do something about evil? But if Jesus is truly to crush the head of the serpent, that he must face him head on. So in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness where he encounters a figure that the scriptures call the devil or the tempter or the Satan. 
And his voice sounds familiar to us. Despite Jesus' clear sense of identity and what God has called him to, this character attempts to allure Jesus. Are you actually God's son? Does he really love you? Why don't you just reach out and take the food? Take the power. Take the praise. Yet Jesus, when tempted by Satan, holds his ground and trusts God where Adam did not. And thus begins Jesus' direct confrontation with evil on behalf of humanity. It's coming apart at the seams. So Jesus confronted evil not only in the wilderness, but in his life and message. He went to war with the effects of evil by healing the sick, by eating with those who were far from God and with the marginalized and those who were outside, by freeing people from the devil's grip, by doing justice and loving his enemies and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus taught that the same God who ruled the world in the beginning, who ruled in love and goodness and beauty, was taking back his world from the serpent. That the kingdom of God was at hand and that anyone, anyone who wanted it, could take hold of it by following him. And further, he showed us what it looks like to live under this good God's rule and what it means to be human and flourish in God's world. And if you follow the teachings of Jesus, themes start to emerge. Jesus dances between teaching about the kingdom of God. That was his favorite topic, hands down. The love of God, who he called Father. The choice to love your enemies. Doing good, the end of evil. And ultimately about his own death. He told his closest friends that soon enough he'd be betrayed by a friend. Turned over or turned in by the religious leaders and killed. He taught them that his blood will be poured out for the forgiveness of sin and restored relationship with God. And if you know the story, Jesus was right. Jesus confronted humanity's deep values for power, control, and self-advancement, the same values that we hold to today. And for that reason, he was betrayed by a friend, tried unjustly by night, and sentenced to a criminal death on a cross. And yet, It is in his betrayal, his trial, his death on the cross that Jesus succeeded precisely where Adam, Eve, Israel, and humanity had failed. That it was in a garden that humanity turned their back on God and the result was evil and chaos. Yet it was in a garden that Jesus stayed obedient to his Father and trusted his will. That it was at a tree that humanity reached out and took something that was not theirs and introducing evil into the world. And instead, it was, in, it was on a tree that Jesus was crucified, absorbing evil and sin and sickness into his own body and letting it die there. He breathed his last breath. It is finished. So Jesus took the serpent's bite so that with his death, Jesus has let the serpent drain all of its venom into his own body. He defeated death by death. But the story does not end there because we believe that Jesus died and three days later he rose from the grave. He triumphed over sin and evil and death showing that he is the true king of the world. The serpent is not. And that in doing so, he has died in our place. So what's on access for you and me is the life that we ache for, the beauty that we ache for, the transcendence in which we long for is on offer for anyone who follows Jesus. Death and evil have lost their grip. Jesus is alive 
And he is the hero of our story. He died and rose to invite us into a kingdom family in which we belong. Where beauty shines forth. Where we are fully loved. And goodness will have the last word. That is the good news of the gospel. And for early followers of Jesus, that news changed everything. Which leads us to chapter 5, the church. The kingdom spreads. Acts through Jude tell the story of Jesus' people being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Living as the people of the kingdom and taking this good news to the ends of the earth. And as they do, piece by piece, God is putting his broken world back together. He's repairing goodness and restoring beauty that sin broke. And this is where this transcendent story intersects with our lives. We find ourselves in the fifth chapter. Because the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Rome and all throughout Europe. And eventually it found its way to you. A follower of Jesus living in Portland, Oregon. We live in chapter 5 of this story. And like the early church, we have an option. We have a choice. That we can follow King Jesus, trusting his definition for good and for evil. And in so doing, we can partner with God to see his world restored and put back together. Or we can follow the voice of the serpent. But the vision for us is that as we gather as we live in community, as we work and relate and live and practice the way of Jesus in our city, that God would bring peace and wholeness and goodness back to his world one day at a time. And like the early church, we still wait for what is to come. In Romans 8, um, Paul describes all of creation. So the trees and the birds and your labradoodle and ultimately you and me. And he uses the metaphor of a woman in pain's of childbirth, so that creation aches and it writhes in pain. People still die. People are still sick. Evil is still done in our world. But something new is being born. We ache for the day when we will experience the full reality of what it's like to be God's children in his good world for the day in which Jesus returns, which leads us to chapter 6 of New Creation. So for 2,000 years, the central Christian hope has been that one day Jesus will return and he will put the world to rights. That all that is broken will be fixed. Evil will be destroyed once and for all. And heaven and earth will be as they're supposed to. Or in the words of J.R.R. Tolkien, everything that is sad will come untrue. Our bodies, which right now break down and die, for those who follow Jesus, will rise with Jesus to participate in a world made anew. Revelation provides a picture of a horseman who will judge evil once for all. And it says that he will cast a great dragon or a great snake down and destroy him forever. The author goes on to say this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and he will be their God. Sense the intimacy there. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, every single last tear of every pain from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
That is where the world is going. This is the story that we find ourselves in. So in the scriptures, we find a story in which we belong. A transcendent story where beauty shines, love is known, and good wins out. Can you feel it? Yeah! This guy can feel it. I like that. James K.A. Smith uh, writes about the story of Christianity, and he says this. The Christian religion didn't last so long merely because everyone believed it. It lasted because it makes for a hell of a novel, which is pretty close to Tolkien's claim that the gospel is true because it is the most fantastic fantasy, the greatest fairy story ever told. And I think Smith and Tolkien are right, that this story is beautiful precisely because it is true. Now, we've covered a lot. Thank you for holding on for the last 36 minutes. To close, I want to address the ways in which this story might land with us. And unlike a lot of our teachings, um, this teaching doesn't have a clear, now go try this thing this week, like fasting or prayer or something along those lines. My goal for our time was simply that we'd be exposed to the story and allow it to wash over us, and in so doing, allow it to clean out and flush and wash out different things in every person here. So there actually might be a lot of ways that it's fitting to respond tonight. For some of us, we simply need to lift our eyes, to step back from your life for a moment, and allow God to shift your attention to see that our stories fit within a bigger story. The story of your career or your family or your neighborhood or wherever it's been that you've been caught up with, all of that fits within a larger story. And if we're not careful, we can become so focused on the micro story of our lives that we actually miss out on the macro story of God and what he's up to in our world. Perhaps you've been caught up in the pressure of a career or of a relationship or maybe even the pain of a dark and just depressing season. And Jesus would invite you once again to lift up your eyes, to reimagine a world charged with God with his presence, with resurrection power, and with, as Harry Potter might say, with magic. Maybe it's time to see the world anew, to see your story in its proper place. Perhaps for others of us, um, this story just simply doesn't feel true. That you feel the longing for transcendence, for beauty and goodness and love, but the Jesus story seems like it's only fantasy. Maybe you resonate with the prayer of the Father in Mark 9, where he says, I believe, help my unbelief. For those of us in that space, I think the invitation of Jesus is twofold. One, just that you'd be honest, that you bring your honest self before God. There's just no use in hiding things like that and pretending anything different. Anything you don't address will ultimately come out. So that if you're wrestling, would you bring that to him? If you're doubting, if you're even wondering, God, are you even there? I think he hears a prayer like that. And second, would you begin the work of actively wrestling? That if you're not holding to the Jesus story, what story are you holding to? Um, Are you applying the same questions, the same criticism, the same scrutiny even to that story as perhaps you have to the Jesus story? Uh, Even as I was listening to that podcast from Dak Shepard, Uh, he made that comment about monkeys and primates, and I kind of just found myself nodding along, like, yeah, totally. And I had to kind of shake myself and say, wait, I don't believe that. 
that I believe those moments of music and art and humanity are so beautiful precisely because human beings are made in the image of God. So maybe for you there's that same kind of jolt that, that I don't believe that moment that needs to happen. A challenge of the assumptions that we've just kind of take as normal in this city. Maybe it's something to do with the character of God. Uh, maybe, as even the storybook Bible put it, you're not so sure that God loves you anymore. Um, that his heart is kind towards you and that he cares. That he's actually good. And tonight I think Jesus would draw you in close. And he wants to look you in the eyes and remind you that his love for you is willing to bleed. That his love for you is willing to go to hell and back. And that he loves you with a relentless tenderness that you cannot run from. You cannot do anything to disqualify yourself from his kindness. That he died and rose to show you just how deeply God loves you. That's what God looks like. Is Jesus hanging on a cross for his enemies to call him friends. That's the love of God. So would you believe God again? Would you, would you be challenged to lean in and trust his character, to trust that he's good, that he loves you, and maybe even dismiss the lie of the serpent who would say that he does not love you and he is not good? Maybe you're in a spot where you've decided good and evil for yourself. Like there's an issue or something where you have, uh, maybe it's a moral issue, something in your life. We've adopted a pattern of knowing this is what God's saying and what he's saying is good and evil, but God, I'm going to take this thing for myself. You can have this part of my life, Jesus, but I'm going to take this. I'm going to see it. It looks good to me. It's mine. And I think the invitation of Jesus, though gentle, is clear. That you would actually turn from that pattern and see the way to life. Because that, that thing does not lead to life. That Jesus invites you to what is good and true and beautiful. So would you turn to him to hear his voice and trust him again? With that, would you stand with me? In a moment, we'll create space for all these types of responses. But before we do, um, I wanted us to do something by responding together uh, with a creed. For, for thousands of years, followers of Jesus have wrestled with, uh, what, with this story. They've wrestled with the truth about God and sin and Jesus and what it means to be human. And at the end of their wrestling, they would distill down what they believed into short statements, or what we now call creeds. And these, these creeds would serve for a place for them to return and recalibrate so that every time they could re- recenter themselves on the truth about what they believed about God and kingdom and gospel. So I want us to join them. Uh, behind me is the Apostles' Creed. It was written originally around 390 AD. And this is something that I uh, read and pray every morning just to recalibrate myself. Yeah, yeah, that's what I believe about God. That's what I believe about the story of humanity and of the world. So would you join me in actually reading this out loud together?